please find our passage of Scripture in your Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, or find it in your bulletin insert. We will use this as a unison reading while you're looking for that. If you were not here last Lord's Day, we began a three-part series entitled The Amazing Grace of Giving based on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and last week we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7, and today we'll be looking at 8 through 15. Next Lord's Day, we'll be looking at the ninth chapter uh, in its entirety. So let us read the Word of God beginning at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, we're in that time of history where once again we're able to watch the Olympic Games. And if you've watched the Olympic Games over the years, somewhat religiously, not just the winter, but the summer games as well, uh, the name Linford Christie may ring a bell. Because in the summer games of 1992 in Barcelona, he became the world's fastest man when he won the gold medal in the 100-meter dash. And most people felt that he was also the man to beat in Atlanta in 1996. But then from this amazingly experienced and gifted athlete, one who had trained four more long years, the unimaginable happened. Because when it came time to run his race, he had a false start, not one time, but twice. And if you remember the Summer Olympics, two false starts, and you're out of there. That quickly, his Olympic career was over. In the matter of just a few moments, he was disqualified. And even today, his brilliant career, and it was a brilliant one because he's still, if I'm not mistaken, the most decorated male athlete in England. His brilliant career is remembered for that disqualification. 
a false start. In his book entitled Stewards in the Kingdom, Scott Roden says that the history of the church's handling of issues regarding stewardship is laden with false starts. And what he means by that is that we in the church today tend to key on the doing aspect of the grace of giving instead of the being aspect. We so quickly, we Americans, we jump to doing instead of thinking about why it is what we do something in the first place. The point is what a steward does depends on who a steward is. We must know who we are first before we know how to live, what to do, what priorities to set in our lives. So the question, who are you in the midst of God's kingdom and who am I in God's kingdom, that is a pertinent question to ask. And to find out who we are, we have to go back to our Creator and reflect upon who He is. Because remember, we were created in His image as the book of Genesis teaches. As we do this, we have to remember that our knowledge of who God really is has been revealed unto us. And it's been revealed unto us in at least two primary ways. General revelation, the creation around us. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that we can know God's eternal power and His deity through the things He has made. When we walk outside, when we, when we look at His beautiful creation, when we look up at the stars in the heavens at night, we can see God's eternal power and deity. And not only that, but we can also see His glory. David makes that clear in Psalm 19 when he tells us the heavens are declaring the glory of God. All of this is revealed unto us in a general way through the creation, but we know so much more through His special revelation unto us in the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ. You remember the Gospel of John tells us no one's ever seen God, Christ. He has made Him known. And not only do we see who God is in Christ, we see this wonderful gift of the Gospel and the gift of His Word founded upon Jesus Christ. For example, in Colossians 1, Paul talks about it in terms of of making the Word of God fully known. He says it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to His saints. It's been made manifest to you and me. Who is this God that we know in Jesus Christ? And who are we as children of this God? And as we ask these questions, we have to remember that it's only through God's grace that we have these questions to ask in the first place. It's only through God's grace that we have the gift of Jesus, the one who makes Him known. It's only through grace that we have the gift of His Holy Spirit who empowers us, who draws us to God in the first place, who leads us, who guides us, who helps us with wisdom. 
It's only through His grace that we have the gift of His Holy Word proclaiming this good news of His love and grace unto us in Jesus. We talked about last week how Paul used this word grace over and over in that first passage in 2 Corinthians 8. Four times in seven verses he uses the word grace. And he uses it again in our passage today in verse 9, which reads, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Paul knows this is where the Corinthians need to begin. And it's where you and I must start as well as we think about this grace of giving. Paul is telling us who we are as he describes Christ our Savior, the one who, though He was rich, was willing to become poor for our sakes. This Christ who is our friend, who is our brother, who is our Savior and our Lord. From last week, we know that Paul has already used the example of joy in giving by talking about the Macedonian churches and this great generosity they expressed even though they were terribly poor. But now with verse 9, he begins to talk about Jesus who is the greatest example of how grace joyfully expresses itself in love. Do you remember what Hebrews 12 tells us about Jesus? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Jesus is the greatest example of this joyful giving and grace-filled giving at work. We know that before the incarnation, Jesus was rich. That's what Paul's talking about here. Jesus was rich before He came to this world. He was with God the Father. And He owned everything. Remember what Colossians 1 teaches us. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things. Yet for your sake and mine, he who was rich became poor. That willingness to give up his equality with God, as Paul phrases it in Philippians 2, to come to earth in the flesh and and endure the cross is how he made himself poor for our sake. This means that the grace-filled gift of salvation that His poverty makes possible is our true treasure. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life with God the Father, all of this and more is our becoming rich. And think about what the incarnation of Jesus teaches us. It not only proclaims the good news of a great love, but it also shows us that grace expressed in love, grace expressed in love is the willingness to give up one's own rights for the sake of the needs of others. What Christ has done for the Corinthians, the Corinthians should be willing to do for the saints in Jerusalem. And needless to say, this same truth applies to you and me. 
Make sure you hear this because this is the opposite of what the world teaches. You know, the world teaches that it's all about our rights. Our rights are of supreme importance, the right of the individual. And this means that if I decide that I don't want to be married anymore, then I just need to divorce my spouse. And we see that go on all the time. If it's all about my rights, then I can abort a baby. You know, this is what the world teaches us, but this is not what Scripture teaches. We're to give up our rights. That's why Jesus tells us if we're required to walk one mile, walk an extra mile. If someone's going to sue us and take our our coat, we're to give up our cloak as well. It's all about sacrificing our rights for the needs of others. Jesus even equates our helping the poor with helping Him. He does that, you remember, in the context of the last judgment in Matthew 25. When the righteous asked the questions, when did we see you hungry and and feed you or, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you in or or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or or in prison and and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. John Wesley took teaching like this to heart. I don't know if you know much about his life. You know, he and Charles are credited with pretty much starting the Methodist church as we know it. He believed in buying necessities for life, of course, and a few extras as well. But for the most part, he figured out what it took him to live, and that's what he lived on for the rest of his life. He started teaching at Oxford as a young man, was paid 30 pounds a year, and he figured out he could live on 28, and he had two pounds to give away. But then as time went on, he made more and more money. His salary was 60 pounds a year, 90 pounds a year, 120 pounds a year. He still lived on 28 pounds a year. And then as an old man... Because not only of his teaching, but the books he'd written and all this sort of thing, he was making over a thousand pounds a year and was still living on 28 to 30 pounds per year. Now, most of us find that we can't do that sort of thing. But we can get to a level and, and not spend any more on ourselves unless we have college students and a lot of you have those, and you're still going to be spending on them after they graduate, or, or at least I am. But, uh, you know, most of us can find a level where we can live with our families and then have more to give away. Wesley became known for his saying, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but his standard of giving. This attitude of giving more as we grow will be practiced as we fully begin to understand the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And can we ever fully understand that grace? No. Not on this side of heaven. 
Now in verse 8 in our text, notice that Paul calls this giving lifestyle a test or a proof that our love is genuine. James speaks much the same way in his letter, though he says when we help the poor, it's a test of our faith, a proof of our faith by which he means the way in which we live each day as we seek to hold on to this servanthood lifestyle that we see in Jesus Christ, this person who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. Paul says much the same here at the beginning of our passage. We know from 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage he wrote on love, that we can give with the wrong motives. We can give away all we have, Paul tells us, but if we have not love, we gain nothing. But hopefully, when we give sacrificially, we, you and I, are giving from the proper motive, which is love. (coughs) Understanding that we know what love is because God first loved us in Jesus. You see, it always goes back to God's grace. What God has given us in Jesus Christ and how we live Christ-like lives when we make decisions based upon and responding to that motive of love in the grace of Christ. Remember, as we discussed last week, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is why love is the chief motive. If we love God, we will love others. Scripture makes that clear, especially does John teach us that over and over again. But if we love self more than God, then our treasure will follow us and not God. And that means our heart will be with us and not God. This is why Jesus teaches us in Luke 18 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement is true because wealth makes it hard for us to respond to Jesus Christ and His grace. It makes us hard to realize how much we really need Him in life because wealth makes us self-sufficient. We think we can do it all on our own. And that's why Jesus said something like that. C.S. Lewis suggests that it is possible for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle, but it's very hard on the camel. And so it requires tremendous transformation for those of us who have wealth, and relatively speaking in the world, that's everyone here today, for those of us who have wealth with its power, its prestige and comforts, to lay some of that aside willingly for the benefit of others and not just squeeze them for our own use and that of our families. And you should take care of your families. Don't mishear me. The book of Proverbs teaches us that the wise leaves an inheritance for his children's children but it doesn't say to leave everything to them. You know, if you have a will and it doesn't leave some financial resources for the work of God's kingdom, you're 
setting a selfish example for your children and all those who will see that will. I mean, think about it. You're teaching them selfishness. They, they are much more important than the kingdom of God. Is that what you really want to teach? Make sure that your will stipulates that some of your estate goes to the work of God's kingdom. I had an aunt and uncle who died a couple of years ago. They never had any children. And when their will was read, there was money left for some of the family, including me, and I was thankful. But what really impressed me that their will stipulated that some of their estate go to the church she grew up in, to the church he grew up in, and to the church they belong to as adults. Three congregations benefited from that estate. And what a wonderful example that is. So, as we've seen, giving is motivated by the example of grace we have in Jesus. It's motivated also by love, love for God and love for others. And finally, as we give offerings in this life, we give proportionately, as Paul makes clear in verse 12. If the readiness is there, he says, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, as I indicated last week, precisely because Paul is discussing a special offering in these two chapters we do not see the word tithe mentioned in this passage, but rather this principle of proportionality. Proportionality is a principle we use with offerings, not with tithes. Obviously, tithe is a 10%, and the tithe belongs to God. The tithe is what we give right off the top. Offerings come later. And Paul is saying with these offerings, use the principle of proportionality it would seem that Paul is speaking against two extremes here. One extreme is the person who has so little that he cannot give as much as others and therefore decides to give nothing at all thinking it's such a small offering that this tiny amount won't make a difference anyway. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe an offering can be so small that it won't make a difference anyway? That's not what Jesus teaches, especially by pointing out to us the widow in the temple treasury that day who only gave two small copper coins, probably the smallest gift given that day, and yet Jesus said that she gave more than all the rest. God appreciates and desires any size gift, especially when it's given with the proper motive. Then the other extreme is rare, but it does happen occasionally where we give more than we can really afford to give. Paul knows that the Christians in Jerusalem are needy and can use help, but the purpose of this special offering is not to help the saints in Jerusalem by impoverishing the saints in Corinth. The acceptable offering is according to what a person has. I've only met this gentleman I'm about to tell you about one time, so I don't know his financial situation at all. But he runs the college bike shop right up the street here on Oakland Avenue. 
And did you know that one of the things he does with his time and the parts in his bike store is to take old bicycles that people have thrown away that they find on the side of the curb and this kind of thing for the city to pick up. He takes those old bicycles and brings them into his shop and, and, and takes his own labor and his own parts and makes them roadworthy again and then gives them to poor who need a way around town in this community. The bike shop owner gives what he has, his time, his expertise, and his willingness to make a difference in someone's life. You see, there are all sorts of proportional gifts, not all of which are monetary. That's proportional giving for the needs of the poor, it seems to me. This principle of proportionality remembers the words of Jesus in Luke 12 where He reminds us that to whom much is given, much is required. This is something that we need to remember as individual Christians, but it's also something we need to remember as a congregation. We have been given much in this place as a congregation. God has blessed us with a long and relatively trouble-free existence as a congregation in this community. We have wonderful facilities that have been provided by the faithfulness of those who have gone before us as well as ourselves, a worshipful sanctuary, a first-class adult education suite on the second floor of Robinson Hall. We have a beautiful fellowship hall and a commercial kitchen. We have a gymnasium. But much more importantly, we have so much leadership in this congregation and so many people whose love for others is evident. We have great teachers and we have great servants. And we have children and we have young people and we were blessed just this past week with a new baby in the life of this church. How does all of that transfer to our giving and the kinds of decisions we make as a congregation when it comes to our annual budget. This is why Paul quotes Exodus 16 here at the end of our passage. You might have thought that verse kind of seemed out of place. What in the world is he talking about there in verse 16? But you remember the context. He's talking about the children of Israel and how God blessed them with the gift of manna all through their wilderness sojourn. You know, that was the the food they literally put in their stomachs day in and day out. It all came from God. And in Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses tells Israel that they had been given food for such a time that they might learn that they were supported not by their own work, not by their own effort, not by their own perspiration, but supported fully by the blessings of God. And this is where Moses says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's a verse that Jesus himself quotes when he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. With this abundant blessing of God, they were never in need. And you see, we've been abundantly blessed as well. And that's why we too want to attempt to live by everything that proceeds 
out of the mouth of the Lord. That obviously includes His Word, but it also includes His vision for this church. Something that your vision team has been working on for some time. Jesus is the head of the church, His body, Scripture teaches. And He has a vision for this congregation, a purpose for us to fulfill. And that's why in 2015 we'll be moving from the budget process we've been using for several years to what is called ministry-based budgeting. If you're a member of this church, you received a letter about this uh, before Christmas. You know, in the past, our budget process has for the most part been an exercise in what happened the year before. We'd try and keep the budget line items, you know, just right there, as close to the previous ones as we could. You know, most of the deacons are Scotch-Irish people. They know how to squeeze a penny. And sometimes our salaries would go up a little bit. Sometimes our benevolent giving would go up. But overall, we'd try and keep that budget right in line with what had gone the year before. But you see, when we live like that, if we're honest with ourselves, if, if it's keeping the budget as low as possible, then over time the budget becomes the great end of the church. And if the budget is the end of the church, then, then faith isn't and mission isn't and vision is not and God is not. And with that kind of budget process, the Lord's work was more or less frozen for a 12-month period of time. You know, some, some great ministry might need to be started, but we couldn't do that because it wasn't in the budget. With a ministry-based budget, the newest budget will not be an exercise in locking the congregation into last year's spiritual state, but rather to articulate what God is calling us to become as a congregation in the next 12-month period of time. And there will also be an opportunity if a new ministry needs to arise in between budget times for that ministry to be possibly funded as well if it falls within the vision of the church. In other words, we'll be asking important questions. What, what new ministries need to be initiated? What other older ministries might need to be retired? How much will it cost to do ministry and maintain the upkeep of these wonderful facilities we have and pay staff for equipping God's people to minister? When the budget is no longer the end of this process, then God is, grace is, and His glory will be exalted through what He enables us to do through the blessings He so wondrously gives us each and every week, each and every month, each and every year, and like the Corinthians, our love will be proven through those things we do in His name. And may He bless us to that end through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.